Judges chapter 6, verses 25 through 32. That's our text this morning. I want to silence your phone or your device so that I don't have to be tempted to make fun of you. The topic, the angel of the Lord instructs Gideon to use his father's bull to demolish the altar of Baal and then sacrifice it on an altar he'd build for Jehovah, the title of our message, Bull Dead City. And we had a discussion in the green room. Let me, uh, let me, this is not part of the study, by the way. How many of you have ever heard of Bullhead City near Alt Laughlin, Nevada? Okay. Thank you. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer. Father, we do thank you this morning uh, just for the privilege, really, of uh, meeting together. Uh, this first day of the week, Lord, where we celebrate in a special way your resurrection from the dead and uh, the fact that it guarantees our future resurrection. In the meantime, we're filled with your Holy Spirit and I enjoy eternal life now. I pray that as we work through these verses, they would be uh, coming alive in our hearts. Though they were written so many thousands of years ago about a particular people in a particular place, we would see their application to us uh, and, and that we would see it because the Holy Spirit is here in this place to uh, be our teacher. We thank you this morning in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, Amen. The most exhilarating live television event of 1986 was not the Bears' 46-10 trouncing of the Patriots in the Super Bowl. It was a few months later when millions of viewers were taken on a digging expedition in the basement of an old Chicago hotel with the goal of finding buried treasure. Do you remember where you were when Geraldo Rivera opened Al Capone's vault? April 21st, 1986. It was a big television event. The two-hour special on Fox proved to be a total bust when nothing but debris was found in the vault. A little over a year later, a safe and a satchel raised from the wreck of the Titanic were opened on live television. Telly Savalas hosted. It yielded soggy banknotes, coins, and jewelry, including a gold pendant with a small diamond and the inscription, May this be your lucky star. Apparently it was not. Have you ever prayed... Search me, O God, and know my heart. That was David's prayer in Psalm 139. When you do that, you're inviting the Lord to open your heart and to show you what treasure or what trash he sees within it. The Bible describes various conditions or characteristics of the heart. Here are just a few of them. When he explained to his disciples the parable of the sower, Jesus spoke of the hard heart, the shallow heart, crowded heart, and the good heart. In the book of Hebrews, we are warned to not harden our hearts. In the Old Testament, God exposed what was hidden in the hearts of some men. He said to Ezekiel, son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble into iniquity. Earlier, God had said to his prophet Ezekiel, son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here to make me go far away from my sanctuary. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. 
I think we'd all agree that idols are definitely something we don't want found in our hearts, nor do we want to have anything that could be considered an, art, an idol in our daily lives. In our verses in Judges, Gideon has to deal with his family's idols. We can use his experiences as a backdrop to discuss idols in our hearts, idols in our lives, and what to do about them. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. In your heart, there be idols that need exposing. And number two, in your world, there be idols that need opposing. And then there's the door that's banging. We had to take the closer off the door because it was leaking oil, and so now it bangs. Either that or some... Well, we don't believe in ghosts, so I can't go that direction. So anyway, in your heart, there be idols that need exposing, verses 25 through 27. When I say idol... Your mind probably flashes on a particular object of wood or stone that is said to represent a god in one of the world religions. I always think of the Buddha statues. Have you ever wondered why the Buddha is so fat? I, it doesn't seem very Buddhist to me. But uh, anyway, he's depicted as that little fat, jolly man. Sort of a Santa Claus, really. Uh, one and the same. That's exactly right. We could do one of those comparison photos. Buddha, Santa Claus. Anyway, today we're not talking about bowing before some man-made object of worship. That is too obvious an idolatry. So what then is an idol? Well, usually when the subject comes up in a Bible study, we immediately say anything can be or can become an idol. And while that is a true statement, I realize it's not very helpful. If anything can become or be an idol, I get overwhelmed from the start and I tend to only give a cursory glance at what is going on in my life. So when somebody tells me, well, Gene, anything can be an idol in your life, that's a long list from A to Z. I'm, I'm never going to get through that. It's too long for my attention span. So I think of one or two things that are considered idols. And if I'm not openly in sin in those areas, then I generally think I'm okay. And so I don't think we search very hard for idols. We need a better definition of an idol. I read a lot of them, but I like this one the most. Taking some incomplete joy of this world and building your life on it. That was said by a guy named Alexis de Tocqueville, a political scientist and historian famous for his book titled Democracy in America. Idols are the things we believe will bring joy, and for joy you could substitute happiness and satisfaction. Most of our idols... Therefore, turn out to be good things that we elevate to ultimate things, believing that if we build our lives on them, they will bring us joy and happiness and satisfaction. One author said this. He said, the human heart takes good things like a successful career, love, material possessions, even family, and turns them into ultimate things. Our hearts deify them as the center of our lives because we think they can give us significance and security safety and fulfillment if we attain them. If you're a Christian, what is ultimate in your life? Well, it's your salvation in Jesus Christ and it's your personal relationship with him. Everything else must take a back seat to your relationship with the Lord. When it doesn't, it becomes your idol, but it cannot ever satisfy you. And in fact, it has the potential to destroy you. If anything becomes more ultimate than God to your life, then that is your idol. Anything? One of Jesus' hard sayings was this. This is from Luke chapter 14. If anyone comes to me and does not hate 
his father and mother, his wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, in his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Now, that sounds really harsh. But we try to soften it by saying that by hate, Jesus really means to love less than me. Or that your love for Jesus is to be so great that your love for others seems like hate in comparison. But I think it's better to see this in the context of idolatry. Family is a good thing. It's a very good thing. There is lots of instruction in the Bible for fathers and mothers and husbands and wives and brothers and sisters. However, marriage and family is not the ultimate thing, and it can become your idol. When Jesus says to hate, he means I think you should be certain marriage and family does not dethrone him from the ultimate place in your heart. You should hate the thought of them or anything else replacing him. And it's for your own good because no matter how hard you try, you can't guarantee your marriage is going to succeed or that your children won't fail. The only thing you can be certain of is that Jesus loves you with an everlasting love and that whatever life has for you, he will never, not ever leave you or forsake you. That's really the only thing that you can be certain of. And so therefore, the only ultimate thing in your life is Jesus. Uh, there are some ideas about, uh, those are just some ideas about hard idolatry to keep in mind while we watch Gideon deal with his family idols. And so beginning in verse 25, now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has and cut down the wooden image that is beside it. Now the angel of the Lord, who we've said is an Old Testament pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus on the earth, had just called upon Gideon to deliver Israel from Midianite oppression, told him he was going to be God's mighty warrior to throw off the yoke of bondage to Midian. The more we learn about Gideon, the less we would have chosen him. You can say he was just being a good son, but he tolerated the altar and the idol in his house. In fact, we'll see in a moment that the altar and the idol were a center of idol worship for the entire community. Gideon's house was idol central. And um, this is, uh, we've talked about it before, this is really gross sin. As far as God's concerned, idolatry is worthy of capital punishment. And yet Gideon tolerates this until he's directly commanded to take action by the Lord. And so uh, you, if, you were, if I was looking for somebody to defeat the Midianites and overthrow idolatry, I wouldn't go to the house of the number one idolater and his son. But that's what God does. Gideon was an idolater and sadly he would end his life still dabbling with idols. At the end of his story in chapter 8, we'll read, Then Gideon made an ephod and set it up in his city, Ophrah, and Israel played the harlot with it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Now, I'm not saying Gideon wasn't saved. He certainly was. He was an inductee to the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. But you can't excuse the pull that idols had on his heart his entire life. One lesson for us, God is gracious even in our failings. Do you struggle against sin and even the same sin over and over again? God's grace is greater than your sin. Now, you should never take your sin lightly, but you should be thankful for God's promise to forgive you 70 times 7 every day. Paul the Apostle said, should we sin that grace might abound? And he said, God forbid you would ever think that. But at the same time, we would all be lost if grace did not abound for us. 
I think the greater lesson, though, is to realize that even if God is using you, it doesn't mean you can't have idols in your heart, and you probably do. Gideon was about to destroy the household idol and altar, but idolatry remained deeply rooted in his heart. And so let's not fool ourselves into thinking because outwardly or uh, we're serving the Lord and things seem to be going well that we can't be harboring idols. He was instructed to tear down the altar to Baal and to destroy the wooden image beside it. The image represented Astarte, the female cohort of Baal. I think it's safe to assume that it was in the vicinity of this altar and this image that orgies regularly took place because that's how Canaanite worship was conducted. And so Gideon's family home was like a red light district. It would seem that Gideon grew up with a steady diet of perverted Canaanite worship right in his backyard. And again, God, what are you thinking choosing Gideon? Same thing he's always thinking, that none of us is worthy, but that in the end his grace is sufficient for us. So verse 26, build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. Now in verse 24, Gideon built an altar on the rock where the Lord had consumed a sacrifice. Here in verse 26, I think it's that same altar, not another one. God would not want his altar on the high place where Baal's had been. It's poetic to think of him having his altar on top of the altar of Baal, but that's not how God operates. So verse 24 seems to be looking forward to this altar, and then these verses we're studying today give us additional information on exactly how and when it was built. Bulls were extremely valuable in their culture. There is some confusion in the wording as to whether or not there were two bulls or just one prize bull. The description of the bull as second, that word second, can be translated prime, take the prime or the prize bull. And so we don't know how many bulls were involved. How many of you have heard of Miles McKee? Anybody know Miles McKee? In 2013, Miles McKee, which is a bull from Idaho, was sold for $600,000, doubling the previous Guinness World Record price of a little over $300,000 at a cattle sale. These bulls are worth a lot of money. And that's all I'm going to say about that. To wake up and be without your prize bull, that was going to be quite an economic shock to the family. Following the Lord can be costly, both emotionally and financially. But the spiritual gain overwhelms any physical or material loss. And so I just want to see the magnitude of what the Lord was asking Gideon to do. To take his father's prize bull uh, and tear down the altar of Baal, and then sacrifice that bull on an altar that he would build to the Lord. I mean, this is you're all in when this happens. Uh, verse 27, So Gideon took men from, ten men, excuse me, from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. Now, commentators say that he did this at night out of cowardice. Maybe. But I don't think so. This was always meant to be a night mission. This is a stealth mission from the start. Had he tried this during the day, his father's guys and the men of the city would certainly have intervened. And so when it says he was afraid, this was a rational fear that he would not be able to complete his mission. And besides that, the Lord came to him at night, telling him to destroy the altar. And Gideon must have thought he meant right now. 
Now, I've been critical of Gideon, but here he obeys immediately at great personal risk. People are complicated. We can be spiritual one moment and then carnal the next. We should give one another a lot of space to be growing in the Lord. We don't think about it that way, but you know, Gideon, Gideon was kind of a, a, a buckethead. God was using him anyway, but then he'll do something incredibly obedient. Uh, and, and, and we look at each other and we think you're either or, but actually mostly we're a mixture of both. We're spiritual, we're spiritual, and then what did I just say? What did I just do? Man, that's so carnal, and then we're spiritual, then we're carnal. And so we need to give each other a lot of space. I'm not saying, again, that we tolerate sin, but um, God tolerates us, and we need to tolerate one another. Now, our first application is obvious. Just as there were idols in Gideon's house, there might be idols in your house, or as we're saying, in your heart. One pastor went so far as to call the human heart an idol factory. We are putting out idols all the time. Idolatry is a massive subject in the Bible. We're told that covetousness is idolatry. Listen to what one commentator said about covetousness. It's a long quote, but I think you'll enjoy it. He says, to covet is to long after another's property, to enjoy it as one's own. It is indulging in thoughts that lead to actions named in the other commandments. And so I covet uh, by thinking of things that I want, and these are the sins of the other commandments. Coveting normally arises from two sources, he says. First, it begins with a perception of beauty. We desire to possess a thing because it looks good to us. And then second, it comes from an inclination for something more abstract, like a desire for power. The first almost always arises externally because the attraction comes through the senses. The second generally arises internally through dwelling upon how the abstract possession will better us. Both are equally bad. Now, we are definitely prone to idolatry, but even more so if we do not invite the Lord to search us and to know us with the goal of revealing what or who may have dethroned him from being ultimate in our hearts. Now, I already mentioned family. Let's use the church as an example. Ministry can be an idol. In the book of Revelation, the Revelation, Jesus let the church at Ephesus know that they had left their first love. We might therefore say he was no longer ultimate in their hearts. What had dethroned Jesus? All good things, like proper doctrine, zeal to expose false teachers, and a multitude of good works. Jesus demanded they repent or he would remove their lampstand, meaning that their witness for him would cease. Now, he didn't want them to stop doing those things. Those are good things that the church ought to be doing. But those things had become ultimate things. And people were thinking that they were right with the Lord because they had the right doctrine and they could identify false teachers and that they were performing good works. And those things had dethroned the Lord and so anything and everything can be or become an idol. Gideon must destroy the idols in his house. Nothing else mattered first. Not finishing the secret threshing he had been doing and not going forth to deliver Israel from her enemies. We must discover and then destroy idols in our hearts. Don't leave thinking anything can be an idol. Leave asking God, what are my idols? And then be willing to destroy them at any cost. Now, secondly, in your world, there be idols that need opposing. The Billy L. Neighbors Demolition Company mistakenly tore down a duplex at 7601 Calypso Drive in Texas 
instead of a duplex at 7601 Cousteau Drive, one block away. They had identified the house using Google Maps, which turned out to be wrong on this occasion. And so uh, that it's funny in a sort of morbid way. When the town of Ophrah awoke, the city's altar and idol seemed to have been wrongfully demolished. So verse 28, when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. Joshua uttered the famous words, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Gideon's overnight altar destruction and construction said the same thing only through action. The altar to Baal was demolished and a bull was still smoldering on a brand new altar to Jehovah, announcing boldly that there was a new sheriff in town. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. The altar to Baal doesn't exist anymore. The pole has been burnt and we're sacrificing to the Lord. And so they said to one another, who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this. It's telling that they didn't have a suspect. No one came to mind. And so when the men of the city, first individually and then corporately, looked at what had happened, they had no idea who in their midst would have been capable of such an action. There were nobody that they could consider spiritual enough uh, or righteous enough or guilty enough to do this. It means there was no one in that town who had any inkling of worshiping Jehovah. No one who had ever raised an objection at all to idol worship. Certainly not uh, Gideon. And so it's, it's interesting that they couldn't find a suspect. If you're a Christian, it's fun to be suspected of doing something good that promotes and points to Jesus. Remember years ago as a salesman, I got called into my boss's office and told I could not pass out tracks while I was on the job. I complied because it was my employer and I wanted to be submissive to that, but I was pretty excited about getting busted. I thought that was cool. They noticed that I was passing out tracks and, and I, I said to them, I said, hey, this is all really good news. The track I was passing out was called the it was called The Good News. It was a little four-page thing that had good news from around the world. Cats saved from, by firemen, you know, things like that. And then there was a few sentences at the end that said, the ultimate good news is that Jesus died for your sins. And I'd staple my card to it. People liked it, but it, I had to quit doing it. I thought, wow, somebody noticed. So that's the idea. If something happened in your neighborhood or where you work, you should be suspect number one. I bet Gene did this. I bet so-and-so did this because they're always talking about Jesus, and this is a Jesus thing. And so, no suspects. This was a completely carnal, lost culture. And then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. This is super ironic, because it was they who ought to have been put to death for their Baal worship. According to the law, they were all under a sentence of death, and they, they wanted Gideon to be killed. Now, Gideon was home, not hiding. While we can't be sure if he knew the extreme reaction that the men of the city would have, it shows Holy Spirit boldness to be somewhere that he could easily be found. 
And so again, we're critical of Gideon when we need to be, but when he's standing with the Lord, we're going to point that out. And so he's, he's at home. After a long night of busting idols, he's just waiting to be found. But Joash said to all who stood against him, would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he's a god, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Now Gideon's dad had the altar and the idol on his property. It gave him a high social standing. It made him somebody in Ophrah. He probably hosted these uh, orgies and then threw epic after parties. I mean, this was the place to be. This was the center of idol worship. His house. All that had changed overnight while he slept with no knowledge of it. Not only that, but as I previously mentioned, Joash was out at least one bull, so he had taken an incredible financial hit. It was the Israelite version of a Wall Street crash. I mean, as you go to bed one night and you're practically on easy street, and then the next morning you wake up and your altar is gone and your pole is gone and your bull is gone. And then on top of that, his own son had gone behind his back and would tell some crazy story about being commanded by the angel of the Lord. When it comes time for explanation, so why did you do this? The angel of the Lord came and told me to do it, told me I'm a mighty warrior. I mean, this is a stretch of the imagination. So welcome to Joash's very own not-so-good, very bad day. I mean, this is, a, this is not a good day for Joash. His reasoning is surprising. And we want to be careful not to read motives into this, because the Bible doesn't tell us what his motives are. We immediately think he was trying to protect his son that he, in the end, was a great dad and just didn't want the men of the city to kill his son. But I think that's going too far. We're not told that. But he does have a surprising reaction. He argued that the offended party wasn't the men of the city. It was Baal. And so let Baal take care of it. Essentially, he said, what did, you guys, you got no dog in this fight. I mean, Gideon attacked Baal, and so let Baal deal with it. Now, did Joash actually think Baal would act? Or was he being used by God to declare that all the idols men bow down to are powerless? Well, I think it's probably a little bit of both. At any rate, he issued a challenge to Baal to take on Gideon himself. That's essentially what this is. It's, it's, it's like he's saying, hey, you guys don't need to do anything because Baal is going to take care of this himself. Elijah would do something like that later in Israel's history only on a grander scale. You remember the episode where he invited 450 prophets of Baal to call upon him to consume a sacrifice. After they failed miserably, Elijah called upon the Lord and he'd send fire from heaven. And then Elijah killed those 450 false prophets of Baal. And so these Baal contests are not unheard of. And so... Uh, Joash, I think, is sincere. He's a sincere Baal worshiper. And he thinks Baal is going to get back at my son. I don't want to have any part of that. Let's just stand back and watch him act. But I can't tell if Joash was crazy like a fox or just crazy. He may have thought Baal would do something. Verse 32, Therefore on that day he called him Jerubbabel, saying, Let Baal plead against him. 
because he has torn down his altar. Jim Croce had a knack for writing songs about dethroned individuals. I see a Jim Croce song in this episode. Remember his song, Jim Walker was big and dumb as a man can come, stronger than a country hoss. When the bad folks all got together at night, they all called G uh, Big Jim boss, right? It's easier to sing, but I'm not going to sing for you. All that until Big Jim hit the floor and found out that you don't mess around with Slim. Gideon was the Slim in this story. He took out Baal. Baal, the god of the harvest, powerful Canaanite deity, under the cover of night, Gideon and his men destroyed his altar and burned his cohort and offered to the Lord. And so that deserved a nickname, which meant let Baal contend or let's get it on is the way I would say. Just, man, let's sell tickets to that. Baal is going to take on Gideon today. And of course, nothing ever happened. It may be that the men of the city prayed to Baal all day to come. He didn't, and that would serve as the setup for Gideon's exploits against the Midianites. When Elijah took on the prophets of Baal, man, they exhausted themselves trying to get Baal to answer their prayers. On and on and on they prayed, and, and uh, it failed. And so I actually see these guys, you know, worshiping Baal during this time and asking Baal to, to rectify the situation. Now, what a disappointment idolatry always is. Now, this part of the story is about Gideon in public. He was identified with tearing down the idol. We need to go public against idols. Now, the obvious idols in our modern world would be sex and money and power. I would normally launch into explanations and illustrations of how sex and money and power are idols, but I don't need to do that because if you're a Christian, you already know that they are. And if you're an honest non-believer you'd have to admit that they are as well. You've dethroned some of them in your own life, or you're still struggling against some of them right now, or you see them in the lives of others, believers and non-believers. What we need is the encouragement to go public against them, and we do that first and foremost by living out biblical values in the areas that our culture has set up as idolatry. For example, God has a lot to say about sex, and it's not all old-fashioned and out of date or out of step. In fact, it's not that at all. There's a whole book about sex in the Bible. It's the Song of Solomon, and it's pretty explicit if you're taking it literally. Sex is a gift from God, and to enjoy it to the fullest, it must be between a biological man and a biological woman in a monogamous marriage that is protected by mutual vows to last as long as they both shall live. When I say enjoy to the fullest, I'm talking about a lot more than the physical pleasure talking about the spiritual wholeness and satisfaction that cannot be experienced outside of marriage or in a relationship between two men or two women. It cannot be experienced because we were created by God and we were spiritually wired by Him. Only when we walk in His truth about sex, revealed in His Word, can we ever hope to be truly satisfied. I mean, God says... I made you. Here's how you're made. You're, you're wired in these incredibly complicated ways, body, soul, and spirit. And here's what I'm telling you to do to fulfill the deepest satisfaction of your life. If we don't do that, we can never hope to be fulfilled or have satisfaction or joy that we're looking for. And we could say similar things about money and about power. The point is this. Simply but powerfully walk with the Lord according to his word 
and you tear down idols that characterize our culture and that are destroying people all around you who are enslaved to them. If that seems too easy, it's not for at least two reasons. First, it's not easy to simply but powerfully walk with the Lord because we seem to always be harboring idols in our own hearts that we uh, discover as we spend time with the Lord. And second, it's not easy to simply but powerfully walk with the Lord because the world system, which is overruled by Satan, is desensitizing us to idolatry and making evil good. Just think of the rapid progress of the sexual revolution that is seeking to completely destroy biblical marriage and family in favor of modern perversions. Uh, I mean, it's, it's moving rapidly. Non-believers and believers who throw off God's teaching on sex and money and power are actually slaves. They seem free and happy-go-lucky. They seem unbound and therefore to be enjoying life off of the Christian reservation. But if that's the case, why is the abuse and addiction to prescription drugs higher than ever and rising? It's because all those free people can't cope because what they see as freedom is actually bondage. It's the Christian who is free. They can't cope because there is someone missing from their lives, and that someone is Jesus. There's something else or someone else that is ultimate to them that can never fully satisfy, that can never bring joy, spiritual joy, and that can never even really bring happiness. God has placed eternity in the hearts of men and women, Ecclesiastes 3.11. It presents as an emptiness that we must fill, and we try to do it in various ways with idols, but we can't because only a relationship with God can fill it. If you're a believer, get the Lord searching your heart to show you idols and potential idols. Seek and destroy them with God's capable help. If you're not a believer, you're commanded by God's word to turn to God from idols. The Word of God recognizes that all non-believers are already idol worshipers. Your life is full of idols, whether it's yourself or many other things. And so the Word comes to you in power when you see Jesus dying on the cross, the Savior of the world, and says, you need to turn to God away from your idols, and He will receive you. Do it today. Do it now. Let's pray.